I'm really glad that this is the uh, last session, <clears throat> because if we'd go one more session, I think everybody would be plastered against the back wall, because you notice the, the, the group just gradually moves back towards the back. What's the deal with that? I don't, but you know what? I can play this game, okay? All I got to do is just move this thing right up to here. So we're, we're right there. So I can be flexible. I'm just messing with you guys. Hey, uh, um, we've evolved in our, we've progressed, I should say. We've talked about the foundation of faith, and really that has been the foundation of what I'd like to talk about now, because this, this session, it might be the hardest session. Uh, hopefully it won't be too hard, but it's really going to be the process of how we move to a place of really being used of God and some of us are at different places. Some of us are being used of God right now. And so this message would be simply an affirmation of where you are. And it's like, keep going, man. Keep doing it. Live in a holy way. Live righteously for God. Live as God would want you to. But there's other people that that's just not where we're at. And I don't know if you find it hard to be real. I, I believe Pastor Van and Pastor Everett Mark try to create an, an atmosphere here at Fellowship where you can be real. But for some reason in church, I've been kind of doing this church thing for quite a long time. And I realize that we like to hide things. We like to make it look like everything is cool and all right with us. But the reality is there's some pretty deep stuff that we go through. And so we're going to hit some of that deep stuff this morning in our last session. Now, I'd like to pray specifically before we get started. I want to pray for some of those things that you guys talked about earlier. So let's have a word of prayer for those. Lord, I just pray for this Bible study that's going to be held in the marketplace Lord, I pray, Father, that not only believers would come to this, but there would be some that you are drawing to yourself, that you would that you would use this Bible study to be salt and light to that person, allowing them to come and ask questions. Uh, Lord, I pray, Father, that you would use that. There's some people, Lord, we know that won't step into a church because it's too big of a step, but they would step into a study because they're curious. A lot of people are curious about spiritual things. Would you please bless that? Lord, would you look after the other requests and the other things that are happening in, in this room? Some of the men that are just uh, being used in the marketplace, that are used in their workplace, in their families. I pray that you would take them, use them in a powerful way. And I thank you for our brother from China. Lord, just sharing the, the change that the gospel has brought in his, in his life, how he was once in darkness, but now he's in light. And Lord, I just thank you so much for, for Fellowship Bible Church and for the other church that presented the gospel that was faithful in presenting the truth and for Fellowship presenting the truth for this brother's wife to come to know, to come to know you. And Lord, we just pray that there would be an outpouring of your work through the body of Christ, through these, these instruments that by, by the world standards of individuals might not be anything at all, but through your standards, it is what you want to do. You want to do the impossible through the likes of us. And so Lord, would you continue to do that? Would you have your way in our time together? In Christ's name, amen. Now, over the years, I have had the privilege of leading several groups on whitewater rafting trips. I don't know if you know this, but Mark used to be a guide uh, for whitewater rafting. In fact, that's Mark right up there in the very... No, that's not really Mark. Okay. But I used to take these groups, and I love these groups, uh, these adventures, because for the most part, they're low risk, at least in theory they're supposed to be low risk and it's high yield because there's this adrenaline rush of going hitting a double hydraulic and being close to just like a, a hair away from death and there's just something about that that's invigorating now if some of you are like you go ahead with your near-death experiences i'll just stay here on dry land 
But you know, taking groups over the years, I realize that there are some people in the group that increase the liability because of their approach. Here's typically what happens when I take a group on whitewater rafting. I actually have, first of all, the middle group, the conser- they're not the conservative, they're just kind of everyday folks that are like, you know what, I'm going to listen to the guide before I get into the water because I value life. I'm addicted to breathing and I kind of want to stay that way. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to listen and he holds the key of life and death. Then there's always the extremes in my group. There's what I call the very conservative person. To be honest, I don't know why they're on the trip. The conservative individual, I mean, they'd go out in a day like today and put SPF 50 on because of the UV rays that could get through the clouds. I mean, these are the guys that they're going to, they're going to listen and take notes as the instructor, okay, yes, okay, as if they're going to be able to review them in the boat. These are the people also that read the fine print. Who reads the fine print? They read the fine, yeah, Darren reads the fine print, okay. Uh, They read the fine print and they kind of, okay, I will hold harmless in the event of my demise. Hey, Pastor Marshall, uh, it says I'm going to die, is that true? Yes, Darren, it is true, you may die, okay? Yes, let's get that out of the way. Then there's the other side, the other extreme, I call them the adrenaline junkies, okay? Those are the guys, forms, who cares? I don't got to look at anything. And while the instructor's giving all the instructions, you know what they're doing. They're not listening at all. They're not hearing what's going on. What they're doing is they're strategizing in their boat on who they're going to attack first and who they're going to dunk and who they're going to splash and what girls are they going to grab and throw into the, uh, into the, le- into the river, so this is the, the environment that I come to. Now, you can only guess which group gets into trouble once we hit the real rapids, the class fives. It's the adrenaline junkies. Here's what usually happens. The first couple of rapids, they're, they're going along and they're doing okay, but then they get to the class fives, and because they haven't listened, they hit that first double hydraulic, and they are almost sucked under in the river. There's this panic that comes over their face like, I'm going to die! And then you get one person that's paddling this way, and the other guy is going just the opposite, which is turning them in circles, and then they do a few dips, a few turns, and before you know it, one person's out of the boat, and everybody's without a paddle, and they are just kind of wandering through the mercy of the rapid, and there's always that one person that's in the center of the boat just hitting the floor saying, Save me, Lord Jesus! Save me! Now, it's almost hilarious to watch this play out. It's fun to watch these guys, and it's all because they didn't want to listen to the instructions. They thought it was about them. You know, in life, I think people, well, life is kind of like the rapids ride, you know? There's some calm places, and then there's rapids, and there's calm, and there's storms, and there's calm and storms. And sometimes we don't succeed in the storms because we've been approaching life maybe a little bit me-centered and I think it's about me and I haven't really listened to the instructions of God. And so we find ourselves all of a sudden tucked in the middle of the rat, in the middle of our rapids, in the middle of our storm and we're saying, help me Lord Jesus because I need your help. In our last session, I want us to evaluate something critical. What is it that you're doing? Are you listening? Are you listening to the instructor? Are you that conservative rider who's listening to the instructions of God? Or are you kind of this adrenaline junkie who is just looking for the thrill, thinking it's about me? Now, I want to give a little disclaimer here. I personally am an adrenaline junkie. I love adventure. That doesn't mean if you're an adrenaline junkie that you can't listen. But sometimes we don't. 
I think the adrenaline junkies tend to have a, have a tendency to kind of gravitate away and doing it on their own. And we got to ask ourselves, are we listening? I'm going to take you to a book that I bet you you've never had a Bible study in or you haven't had a message in, at least recently, to the book of Zechariah. Turn in your Bibles. It might take you the entire time that we're speaking for you to actually find it. But work at finding this, and we're going to look at Zechariah. And the title of our message is From Ruin to Restoration. Now, I need to set a little context for you about the book of Zechariah for you to understand it. We're going to camp out in chapter 7 and 8, so you can just turn to chapter 7. We'll start there in a little bit. We'll get there in a minute, but let me set the context. Zechariah is the prophet that is dealing with the people that have just gone through a lot of different rapids. God used these rapids, they were by God's design, to give the people of Israel a whooping. God wanted to get their attention because He had to. Why? Because they were not listening to the prophets. Because they had rejected God's love. Because they had hardened their hearts to, towards God. And they chose to live a life of disobedience. This was the people of Israel. So God sent a foreign nation, the Babylonians, to come and bring and take them into captivity for a 70-year time out. This was God's discipline corner. And he puts them in the corner and says, you stay there 70 years and you're going to learn your lesson. He actually wanted to teach them. It wasn't exactly like that, but it was a time out for them, for God to get their attention. And now by the time Zechariah is writing, the people of Israel have come back from their time out. Now after discipline, we should be at a place where we're able to listen. That finally our hearts are a little moldable and we're teachable before God. And so this is where Zechariah is coming in and he's going to teach them. Now it's interesting, we see them in obedience to God because as they come back into the promised land, they start rebuilding the temple of God. And by the time Zechariah writes, the foundation of the temple has been built, some of their towns and villages have been rebuilt, and now they're in the process of building. They're actually halfway through the construction job of the new temple. Now, it wasn't a temple like the old temple, but it was a temple nonetheless. Now, why was Zechariah writing? There was two reasons that Zechariah was writing. The first reason was to encourage the people to finish the temple of the Lord. Let me explain that for a minute. You and I may not understand that in terms of what they did in Jerusalem, but the temple of the Lord was vitally important. If you were to read 1 Kings chapter 8, you would see the dedication of the first temple. And in the dedication of the first temple, God had some very specific things that were associated with the temple. The first thing that was associated was His name. The temple of God represented the name of the Lord. And constantly you would see in the passage, the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord, which means that the temple was part of God's reputation here on earth. And so the temple was to be represented well by his people because it was the reputation of the Lord. Here's a fact. You and I are a representation of God to the positive or to the negative. What are we? The people of Israel were a negative representation. The second reason for the temple is it was a place for restoration. When somebody did wrong, when somebody sinned against God, it was a place that they could go and they could bring sacrifice and they could have their sins atoned for. And God says, man, this is a place. I don't want you to live in disobedience. I want you to be in right relationship with me. And the third reason for the temple was for evangelism. Because it says that there will be foreigners that will come, Gentiles. And I believe that the court of Gentiles was originally the place in which they could hear about the God of Israel, the God of uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They could understand that. 
That kind of gives insight to when Jesus overturns the tables in the temple. They're in the court of the Gentiles. They missed the purpose. That was a place where they were to hear about God, not do business. So this was the purpose of the temple. And God, it was really high on his priority list that there would be a representation of all three things back in this land. The second reason is to paint a picture of a bright future for Israel. This is this tells us a lot about our God. Our God loves to restore. Our God loves to bless. He wants every single individual person in here to prosper. And I'm not talking about financially, but sometimes finances is part of that. He wants you to prosper in your high schools, in your college, in your businesses, in your retirement. He wants you to prosper because that's the kind of God we have. Sometimes we think of God as a, as someone that's kind of checking it off. How many quiet times have you had? If you didn't have seven for seven, didn't have a prayer time, didn't have this, didn't have that. Then all of a sudden, God's going to get angry and curse you and everything's going to go wrong. And that's why my car broke down. No, that's not the heart of God. God's like your father. He is your heavenly father. He's not a taskmaster. He, when my son, who I haven't heard from in a couple weeks, calls me, I want you to know what my heart does. It leaps for joy, man. Oh, my son. Oh, man. What's going on? Let's talk. Let's, let's, that's God. That's the relationship you need to keep in mind. God is painting a picture for a bright future. Now, unfortunately for Israel, there wouldn't be a real bright future for quite a long time. So he has to project way out. He knew that the people of Israel would yet be overtaken by the Greek Empire. He knew that they would then, after the Greek Empire, be taken by the Roman Empire. He knew that in 70 AD that the whole nation of Israel would be dispersed from Israel. Jerusalem would be destroyed. The current temple that they, or the, their temple would be completely destroyed and they would be dispersed abroad. God knew that they would not come back together until 1948. Now we're coming close to our time. And he knew that that would happen. He knew that the Holocaust would happen. And he knew that in 2012, there would be a madman called Ahmadinejad who would be saying, I want to wipe Israel from the face of the planet. God knew it. God knew that there would be a long time, and he projects it to a time in the, what is called the millennium. A time in the millennial kingdom where finally Jesus Christ will rule, the Messiah will rule on the throne. And he paints that picture here in the book of Zechariah for them to realize there's a time that's coming. A time where it's a bright future. I want you to look forward to that time. So that sets the context for the book of Zechariah. I will tell you that in the book, there's a breakdown. Let's go to the next picture. The first eight chapters is a vision. And all of the visions, there's eight visions there, they're all projecting about this millennial kingdom. Now they, at the other end, the bookend of chapters 9 through 14, are two oracles. An oracle was something that was a little bit longer, a little bit more sequential, a little bit more information. And there was two oracles that uh, that Zechariah gives. The first oracle dealt with Jesus' first coming. That's where you have the prediction of him coming riding on a colt into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's a prophecy that's given. So it's the first oracle of the appearance of the Messiah. The second one is about the return of Christ. When he, at the end of the tribulation time, he will return to the earth, he will defeat all the enemies of God, and then he will usher in the millennial kingdom. And so that's the second oracle. We are not going to deal with either of those bookends. We're just going to focus on the middle message, which is the steps to restoration. He had a practical message tucked into this book for the people of Israel, because he wanted them to move to a place of productivity for him, restoration. And you know what? This is where we find a message for ourselves. 
because I believe just as he will lead them through steps of restoration, we will find a message for us in what has to happen for us. Here's the first thing that he does. Step number one, he deals with their past. This will be our most painful point. He deals with their past. Take a look of chapter <clears throat> chapter 7 and read along with me in verses 1 to 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer, I love these names. I mean, they're incredible. That's what I'm going to name my next grandchild. Sherezer and Rehem Melech. Together with their, you know, of course, this is something that Mark would do because he picks every Hebrew name in the Bible to name his children. So, um, together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets this question. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, here's the situation. They're back. They have a question that's on their heart. There's a delegation that's sent from Bethel of two men that go down to talk to the priest who would have been Joshua and the prophet Zechariah. And they're sitting there in Haggai, and they're sitting there talking, they're saying, okay guys, we have this question. Now little did they realize that this question would open up a can of worms. It would open up an opportunity for God to look at their past and say, I gotta deal with that, because there is something that's been happening for a long time, and I need to get to the heart of the issue with you. And so what he's teaching here in this passage is three, actually three main insights that I want to point out. One is positive and two is negative. Here's the first positive insight. The positive insight here is uh, that I want to draw from this passage is that at least the people of Israel were doing what was right. Okay? They're building. God said, you destroyed my temple. You destroyed it by giving a bad reputation. And so I sent the Babylonians to wipe out the temple. And so now you have to rebuild it. Just as a side note here, I want you to know that God is willing at any time to destroy what we might think are significant works if his glory is no longer there. Fellowship Bible, the church, Fellowship Bible can be destroyed in a heartbeat. God will take you out. I was a part of a ministry at one time that no longer exists because I believed that the glory of God was not being honored in that ministry. The church split and eventually the name of that church went to the wayside. And it was a church of 1,200 people at one time. It doesn't matter how big we are, how glorious we are, what kind of buildings we have. It's about the glory of God. It always has been. Now, I've been taught as a preacher, there's three things that I don't touch as a preacher. I don't touch the glory. I don't touch the gold. And I don't touch the girls. Okay? That I shouldn't be involved in any one of those other than my wife. Okay, that's the only girl I have. This is, that's kind of a side note here. The positive here is that the people are doing what they're supposed to. Now here's the negative insight. The negative insight is that the people had a heritage of disobedience. What do I mean by heritage? Notice in verse 2, you probably wouldn't have seen it the first time. Let me point it out. The people of Bethel, underscore the word Bethel, that town, had sent these two people together with their men to entreat of the Lord. Now the two people that are mentioned, let me focus on them first. These aren't Jewish names. These are actually Babylonian names. So in other words, the two people that they send down as representatives were people that were born in Babylon. Here's what I want you to know. They had nothing, nothing, nothing to do with getting the people of Israel into the mess that put them into captivity. They had nothing. And yet they are there as representatives. Now I would propose to you 
that there was a heritage of disobedience that was passed on to these these men. We all know in our own lives that unless Christ intervenes, alcoholism goes from one generation to another. Pornography goes from one generation to another. And we can name sin after sin that passes on from one generation to another. Now, it's also significant that they came down from Bethel. The town Bethel was very significant before they went into captivity. Because this was a town that there was a king, King Jeroboam, and you can read this on your own in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 33. But here's what happened. King Jeroboam said, you know what, I don't want the people of Israel to have to go all the way down to the temple, so I'm going to set it up so they can worship right here in Bethel and also in Dan. And so I'm going to set up worship for them. So he sets up two golden calves for them to worship. What's the deal with these golden calves, man? Who would want to worship that? But for whatever reason, they did. He set up a place for them to come. He set up priests who were not Levites, who were not qualified to lead in worship. And they mocked the uh, festivals that they had. They mimicked them in that, I I should say mimic is a better word, they mimic the festivals in that they had like their own day of atonement. But it was all atrocious to God. Here's the point. This is all in the past. This is the heritage that they came down from, that they came from, and I believe that there was a residue of disobedience that was passed on from one generation to another. Keep that in mind when we come to a place of application for you and I. Here's the third insight. The people had a heritage of going through the motions. Now in our passage, we see that these men ask a question. Should we continue to fast? Now the fast that they're talking about, fasting is going without food. And the fast that they're talking about was instituted by man. It was not instituted by God. Here's what happened. The Babylonians came and destroyed the temple and took them into captivity. Every year they were in captivity, they fasted on the same day, every year, year after year, in remembrance of the temple, of the glory days of the temple that was destroyed. They instituted that fast. And now, here's kind of what they were saying. You know, God, uh, 70 years has gone by. Captivity is no longer in place. We're halfway through the construction project. So why should we continue on with this fast? So they asked the question, should we continue to do it? But God uses this to show them that they've been going through the motions. Take a look at verse 5 and 6. Ask the people of the land, this is God speaking, ask all the people of the land and the priests, um, <clears throat> when you fasted and mourned in the fifth, and he even adds one, the seventh month for the past 70 years, Was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? See, God uses this opportunity of this question to expose the hypocrisy of the people. And God's like, "Um, guys, hello, I want you to think about this. When you were doing all these rituals of fasting, was it really for me? When you're going and having these feasts and these parties and stuff, and you were saying it was for God's name, was it really for me? See, what God is trying to expose in them is this ritualistic pattern of kind of going through the motions. It would be equivalent to the person that goes to church every Sunday and they sit in the same seat every Sunday and they sing songs and they raise their hands maybe or maybe depending on the culture here, maybe you don't raise your hands. But you sing and you pray and then you go home and you just live life the way that you live life. Going through the motions. And that's not to say that God doesn't have your heart but in this situation He's trying to say, guys, I have never had your heart. You've been going through all these feasts and festivals 
I haven't had your heart. And what God is really trying to get at is that He didn't want them to be pretenders. He wanted their heart. And so in order to do that, God had to deal, God had to deal with their past. Look at this. We must deal with our past before we can move forward in our relationship with the Lord. Here's my question with you this morning, with all of us. Does God have your heart? All of your heart. See, I wonder if there's some here that are today are kind of like the people of Israel. Oh, your circumstances are different. You know, obviously it's more contemporary, but the issue is still the same, our heart. And that we have not surrendered it completely to God. You see, God sent Zechariah for such a time as this because they had gone through this discipline. Their hearts should have been a little bit more moldable and at such a time as that, God sent a messenger to proclaim a message for them to open up their hearts and yield to God. And I wonder if the rapids of life that you've been going through, if they have not been orchestrated actually by God to get our attention. And because of His great love for us, it's such a time as this that He's set up a men's retreat like this and put it upon the hearts of your pastors and the message that God has placed on my heart to speak just to your heart. Isn't that incredibly special of God to do that for us individually? And I wonder if there's something that God wants to teach us. Does He have our heart? In order for him to have our heart completely, I believe we have to deal with our past. What do I mean? This pot here, borrowed it from my wife out of the kitchen, it represents your life. And you know, in our life, there's some people in different extremes, but some of us have had some great experiences that poured into our life. See, I see, see it as a pot because we are a collection of experiences, aren't we? Now, some of you guys have been raised on God's Word. Man, you went through Olympians. You went through every Bible camp. You went to church camp. You've been to every men's retreat. You grew up on that kind of stuff. And this is the product of your life right now. And that's an awesome thing. And there are some people that have gone through life like that, and they are living for the Lord. And I say, awesome. That is incredible. Now, it's interesting that there's some people that will have all those experiences, and guess what they'll do? They chuck it. They chuck it. Even though that was poured, it's still in their mind, it's still in their hearts, but they've decided to do it their own way. And so they're going and making their own path. They're being their own God. They are living, they are calling the shots, baby. And man, you're living the dream. But that dream has a lot of negative effects. It ends in different kinds of addictions. It, it has all kinds of ramifications when we get away from God and we do things on our own. That's some people. There's some people, quite frankly, you didn't choose to have all the crud that was put in your pot. You didn't choose. You have a lot of nasty in here. You have a lot of nasty because you didn't ask for the abuse. You didn't ask for an alcoholic father. You didn't ask for an absentee person in your life or parents in your life. You didn't ask for it, but that's what you got. You didn't ask to be raised as an atheist. And you got all kinds of stuff in here. You learned life through lies, through manipulation, through deception. You have sexual abuse that you have faced. You have all kinds of perversions. I heard the story a couple weeks ago of a pastor who grew up in his family and his daddy at the age of eight took him downstairs to watch the porn channel with him. And he had to watch it with his dad. He was learning about life. 
He tells the story of how once he became a a Christian that it took nine hard, intentional years to break the addictions of pornography and he did not ask for it. But that's exactly what he got. See, the reality is this life is hard and we have all kinds of stuff in our past. And the the thing is, Some of us, this is what we try to do. We come to Christ and we think it's all under the blood. And yes, we are forgiven under the blood. But the ramifications of some of these things still have to be dealt with. And what we've done is we've suppressed, we've suppressed, we've buried it. And we're not willing to deal with it at all in our life. We've got to deal with the residue of sin in our past. This is what fills my counseling room. This is what fills Van's, this is Pastor Van's counseling room. I use this counseling sheet whenever I meet with somebody. And the first thing I do is I go through all the history. I find out how they grew up, what their parents were like. I want to find out exactly what's going on. And usually, this is, takes the entire first session for us to get together because there's a lot of Kleenex that come out. There's a lot of tears if people are willing to open up. And so all of a sudden, we start working on how can we start working on forgiveness because really there's been bitterness in my heart or that person's heart. And we have to deal with that. Now, I want you to know that this isn't just for other people. It's for me as well. Now, sometimes people look at pastors and they think that pastors grew up on the nipple of God's word. That they grew up, they were, when they were infants, they were in golden diapers, man. They were, they were, they were just in an incubator of God's truth their whole life. I want you to know that's not true. I have personally, as a pastor, have gone through some of these things that I did not ask for. I've used two books that have been absolutely vital in my own life. This is Victory Over Darkness uh, by Neil Anderson. It has been a book that has helped me work through where my significance lies and for me to work through the bondage that I have had. Because here's what's true about the enemy. The enemy, and I'll leave these here for you to look at, uh, after the service. And if Pastor Van wants to get some for the body, you can, or you can order them yourself. Here's what I know. The enemy, even from infancy, infancy on, wants to attach lies of defeat on every single one of our life. And when I was held back in second grade, I wasn't a Christian, but I, he attached a lie. Failure, loser, failure, no good. And you know, I went through life thinking that I was like that even after I was a believer and it took well into my Christianity for me to realize that I had these leeches of lies all over me. And there are some lies that you have been believing about yourself and you might be 60, 70 years old and you say, well, really? No. Yeah, it's true. And in order for us to get to the place of full restoration, I believe we have to deal with the past. Let's move on. Here's the second part, and I love this. We get to put on the Lord. Take a look at verses 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. Now this is the beauty of God. God is kind of like that raft instructor who is always going to point you to safety. He's never going to point you to harm. He always is going to try to provide and to protect you. And He is always going to navigate you this way. And that's exactly what He's done with the people of Israel. He's listed here the things that are on the heart of God. By the way, these weren't new things. These are the things that the prophets have been speaking of to the people of Israel for a very long time. Now look at this list. Execute true justice show mercy and compassion don't oppress people and he gives a list the widows the orphans the foreigners those that are poor and don't think evil of each other let me ask you a question how was it possible for the people of israel to do this how was it possible for them to actually exercise this 
I would propose to you that in and of himself it was impossible because every one of these things are the character of God himself. And what he's asking them to do is to put on the character of God in their life. And I want you to know, putting on the character of God does not just come flippantly. It comes intentionally. These people would have to seek after God. These people would have to listen to God and allow the Spirit of God to teach them. And if they could do that, they could put on the very character of God. You know, we live in light of the Messiah having come. And we have Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you and I. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's been an age-old dilemma as to how do we put on Jesus Christ in our life. Now, when I was a youth pastor, there was methodologies that came out that were kind of popular. I don't, tell me if you've ever seen this. Move on to the next slide. What would Jesus do? You remember that WWJD, man. Everybody had their bracelets, their bumper stickers, their t-shirts, man. They're wearing it all over the place. And as a youth pastor, I kind of had one problem. And now as I look back, I have another. One problem was some of my guys, and I, we had like 85% of our kids that were in secular, in public high schools. Not to say it couldn't happen in Christian or homeschool, but a lot of these kids were out drinking, uh, you know, Coronas on the weekend and doing some weed and then going to see you at the flagpole on Monday morning and raising their hands in worship. I'm like, guys, kids, don't be doing that. Don't be putting, what would Jesus do? And, you know, having a Corona and getting buzzed and, you know, doing marijuana or whatever. Don't be doing that. The other problem I had is now reflecting back is, I wonder if it's really possible now, think about this with me for a second. What would Jesus do? It's almost as if we're looking at Jesus from a distance and in and of ourselves we're saying, okay, I'm going to take note of Jesus. He did this, he did this, he did this, and he did this, and yes, that's what I'm going to try to do. I want you to know there's an element of impossibility with that. Let me put it in a different realm. Now, I'm not a big golfer. But I do like to golf once in a while. And if you were to see my golf game, you would say that I am no Jack Nicklaus. Okay? I pretty much can golf today at a 52. I can golf next year the same time and golf a 52. If I golfed every week of my life from here on out, guess what I would golf? A 52. That's right. Now, let's just say I would say WWJD. What would Jack do? And I watched Jack Nicholas, and I watched every one of his training videos, and I took note, and I read every book, and I practiced 40 hours a week on my golf game. I can make a promise to you gentlemen, and that promise would be this. There's no way in the world I'm going to golf like Jack Nicholas. No way. Not in and of myself. Let me propose to you that the only way that I would ever possibly golf like Jack Nicholas is if by some weird possibility the spirit of Jack Nicholas could come take over my body and then all of a sudden, wow, I'm hitting it 300 yards straight down the center. That would never happen with me. We know that that's not possible, but let me tell you what is possible. The Spirit of Jesus Christ coming and living inside of you. And this is what the secret of the exchange life that Paul was talking about when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's not what I can do on my own ability. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life which I am now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. My friends, step two is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, that's why you're going to keep coming back here every single Sunday and learning from the Word. That's why you're going to read the Word for yourself and become a student. Because we got to seek God. 
we got to ask the Spirit of God to mold us and conform us and to chisel us away so that we start taking on the very character of Christ. And that's what's also going to help us deal with the past. Now, the last thing we see in this passage I want to point out is that we see the miraculous restoration. Now, I don't have time for this, but if you were to read chapter 8, the first eight verses, you would see how God paints a picture for the future for Israel. Take a look at verse 3. I'll give you one verse. He says this, This is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Jesus is, or God is predicting that the Messiah would come and that He would actually dwell as the King in Jerusalem. And notice when Jesus is the King of a town or a city, what happens? Jerusalem will be called the city of what? Truth. By the way, just a side note, that's why the church exists in the city. Because in 1 Timothy 3, we are told that we are the pillar of truth. And the only way that a city will be transformed, it will not be through Congress, it will not be through the Senate, it will not be through a political Messiah. It is only going to be through the church. And the church is what's going to be the pillar of truth in society. But Jesus someday is going to be this pillar of truth. And the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Man, what a picture for the people of Israel. That someday, man, God would live in that city. They had had horrible kings by their own choices, and now they would have the Messiah. They had had all kinds of mistakes, but now they would be considered holy. This was the picture that he was painting for the future. Here's the point, though. God loves to restore. And as I look at the New Testament, I see that we don't have to wait for a distant future, that there is something that God will do right now for those that are believers in Christ. He restores now. And I like the, I love the New Testament. There's probably many ways, but here's two ways that God restores. God restores us when we sin, and God restores us when we are weary. Both are necessary for us. I love 1 John 1.9. Someone say this with me. <clears throat> Go to the next slide. Let's say it together. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you allow those words just to soak in, the idea that He forgives us our sins... All of our sins. He purifies us. That's the beauty of God because we might be a thousand mistakes away from God and God says, you confess it. You confess it. I want to restore you. You're my son. The other beautiful thing is what we see in Galatians. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. That's why he's given this place. For us to have each other. Because He knows we can't do it alone. We need each other. That's the beauty of the church. He restores us when we're weary. Look at this passage in Peter. And the glory of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's what God will do. Some of you have been afflicted with pain. Your body's going. Your hearing's going. Your knees are going. Something's going. You are in a difficult job situation. You're weary. Just this life itself is wearisome. The question I would ask for you is, are you trusting in God's restoration? See, this morning or this afternoon, I'm speaking to a group of individuals, and myself included, that desperately needs for God to restore them. And here's what I want to do to close out our session. I'm going to have a song called Indescribable by Chris Tomlin that's going to play on the screen. I would like everybody as a norm to remain seated during this song. But if you are a man that says there is an area that I need restored in, I've been thinking about this. What provoked me was when you talked about the past. 
And maybe there's a, a relationship that needs to be restored. Maybe there's something that you need to deal with. Maybe it's just some of these past issues. If there is something specific that God has on your heart, what I want you to do is I want you to stand up during that song. Don't stand up because everybody else does or don't sit down because everybody does. This isn't about everybody else. This is what I call that time of decision for us with God as a response of God's word for us to respond in true worship to say, okay, God, I've heard the message of real faith, that there needs to be evidence, that I need to be the example and I realize that there are things in my past that are prohibiting, prohibiting me from being the kind of example that I need to be. And I want you to take this as a God time for you to reflect. Think about the indescribable God that we have that loves us. And then I'll have a few closing words. But this is just between you and God. You may be seated. I'm really proud of when we as men are willing to say, okay, this is, yeah, this is what needs to happen in my life. And there may be things that God puts on your heart after this retreat. Maybe you might share that with Pastor Van or one of the other pastors here or with another brother in the Lord. Get accountability to whatever that issue is. I want to close with just this thought. It's interesting at the end of chapter 8, something happens because it's talking about the future millennial reign. And this is what's going to happen during that millennial reign. It says in verse 23 of chapter 8, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, In those days ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem from his robe and say, Let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. What's interesting is during the millennium, there will be children that are born that need to come to an understanding of who the Messiah is. And what we see is the center of evangelism during the millennial reign is the Jewish nation who will be the ones leading people to the Lamb of God. They're going to be leading all nations. And what a beautiful picture of the future. But it teaches us a valuable lesson here. That God restores us not for our own means. It's not man-centered. It's not about you being restored so you can become a better person. No, it's so that you can be the in the army of God. So that you can be a part of the ranks that lead other people, the nations, to the living God. God wants a whole people, people that are whole in heart, soul, mind, spirit. He wants that with us so that we can lead others, the nations, to the Lord. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday. That's the missing piece. You get a little bit of an advance on the Sunday morning message. The missing piece is the go to be his representative. Be that. O oh, men of courage.